This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. Back in 2013, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association undertook a fisherman's oral history project, and this was supported by the Maine Humanities Council and the Island Institute. Uh, and we have hours of fantastic stories for those interviews. We uh, brought somebody on board to do these interviews. We sent him out to meet with a bunch of different fishermen up and down the coast. We've used them for a couple of different projects, but we still have this treasure trove of stories and histories and voices for Maine's coastal communities. So one of our hopes for this podcast was that we would be able to take some of these stories and share them with you. And we actually have this great interview with this retired herring fisherman named Gladden Chirac. And he has this deep, gravelly voice that you'll be able to hear. He's, he's pretty fantastic. And this he spent his life out on the water fishing for herring. He's also done some theater, and you can kind of tell in his voice and his presentation. So he's, he was a great interview. Um, but with what's happening this week, there's been a lot of news around the herring fishery and the bait shortage that's in Maine and impacting the lobster fishery. And so we thought that it would be a great time to wipe the dust off of this interview and share it with you. So that's going to be our interview today. And uh, so we're going to be transitioning to that in a minute. But first, I kind of wanted to set the stage and talk a little bit about what's happening in the herring fishery in Maine right now, why this is an issue, why people are talking about access to bait, and, and what's going on. So herring is a small forage fish, meaning that it's on the bottom of the food chain. It's something that everything eats. It's a crucial source of nutrients for everything in the environment, from small puffins all the way up to giant whales. And it's also the primary source of bait for the Maine's lobster industry. There are other types of bait that fishermen use depending on availability, but really if you were to do pound for pound, what we're putting out into the ocean and out into the Gulf of Maine is, is either fresh herring this time of year or frozen herring uh, throughout the rest of the, of the fishing season. So in the future, we will do a couple of podcasts that dig into the need of herring as food in the Gulf of Maine ecosystem, its role in that ecosystem, thinking about you know rebuilding fish stocks and the need for abundant resource of forage out there. But today we're, we're talking about bait, right? And this is what's causing the lobstermen small main herring boat fishermen and then the big offshore herring fishermen to kind of be sparring off right now. So last year, the large offshore herring fleet was shut down on George's Bank because they were catching too many pounds of haddock in their nets. Because of this shutdown, there is not a lot of frozen bait sitting around in the freezers and in storage throughout, uh, throughout the bait you know, kind of structure in Maine. Right now, what traditionally happens is is fishermen start using uh, a, a really fresh bait that's being caught by smaller inshore trawlers or paratrawlers or um, purse-sane vessels in the Gulf of Maine. But the offshore fleet isn't finding herring on George's Bank right now. We don't know if that's because the herring is spawning and it's not a high enough quality. Uh, We don't know if it's because they're worried about catching haddock again this year and so we're trying to avoid some of those areas. Uh, It could also just be that the herring have moved off of George's. 
Uh, right now, the herring stock is supposedly robust. There's a lot out there, according to science. And so we, we don't think this is because they can't find the herring. At least that's not what we're being told. But uh, who knows, you know, as, as we've talked about on this podcast before, science is always a little bit tricky when it comes to our, our fish stocks. So what's happened is a lot of these larger offshore vessels have moved into the Gulf of Maine and are either targeting these inshore stocks or are serving as carrying vessels so that fishermen are coming in and uh, they're loading up their boats and then they're offloading it to one of these larger vessels, which allows them to, to target the resource a little bit harder and faster. The lobster industry, understandably, is very concerned. Uh, they see this fresh market, this fresh bait as the, the premium quality bait that they want to be buying throughout the, the hard fishing season, which is the summer and early fall. And with the current rate of catch because of these larger offshore vessels coming in, there's a lot of concern that the fresh bait fishery is going to get shut down really, really quickly. So uh, in response, the, the lobster industry has come together and asked for reductions in the number of days that boats can land their fish and numbers of days that boats can go actually go out and catch fish as well. And the state of Maine today, Friday, is going to be dropping an emergency rule that will be further limiting these boats and their uh, ability to you know, spend time on the water and actually put in the, the time and energy to catch fish. Uh, it's going to be going down to three days that they're allowed to land fish, I believe four days that they're allowed to, to catch fish. Uh, but that's not finalized yet. We haven't seen the final rule. It'll probably be dropped uh, once I'm done recording this podcast because that's just how things work. So um, that's kind of setting the stage for where we are right now in, in Maine. The price of bait is going up. Every week, the price of bait is increasing, uh, and that is very difficult on the lobstermen who are trying to make a living, and bait is one of their largest expenses. So that's just to kind of set the stage for what's going on. We'll probably revisit this again in a couple of weeks because this isn't all over. The hope is, is that the herring will show, off, show up off of George's and that the herring fishermen can go out, the big boats can go and, and prosecute that fishery, and the small boats can come inside and uh, do what they need to do in the Gulf of Maine to supply the fresh market with, with bait. But it is always difficult in the fishing industry when you have multiple uh, vessel sizes, vessel types, or fisheries that are competing for the same resource. Uh, that's where you get gear conflict. That's where you get user conflict. And um, right now, if, if you're watching the news, you'll see small boat herring fishermen that are complaining about the big boats coming in. You'll see lobster fishermen worried about their access to local bait and their local supply and the cost. And we're actually seeing, a sh even with the larger boats coming in, we're seeing a shortage of bait on the market so that many people are having to think about alternative bait types or looking at the frozen bait. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things moving in around right now, and there's a lot of people who can't get access to the typical bait that they're used to this summer. So um, it's, it's ongoing. It'll be interesting to be able to follow this. And, um, and yeah, it, it's a very interesting spot for the state of Maine to be considering our reliance on lobster and, and how big of a fishery that is, especially in the summer months in Maine. So with that transition, we're going to be moving into a uh, discussion with Gladden Chirac. The interview was conducted by Josh Wrigley, and this was done uh, in 2013. You can hear uh, Josh asking a few questions back and forth with Gladden, but mostly we're listening to Gladden talking about this particular type of fishing, which was stop sane fishing in the state of Maine when he was going out and fishing for herring. 
So I uh, hope you enjoy the, the interview, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes after. The date is June 26, 2013. This is Josh Wrigley, and today I am here at the home of Herring Fisherman, author and playwright Gladden Schrock in South Bristol, Maine. The subject of our interview today is your recollections of the Herring Stopsane fishery and how coastal life in your region has changed since you began fishing. Um, the Stopsane Herring, it's a graceful, poetic, wonderful business that will drive you fucking nuts. Uh, and has and has a Las Vegas air to it, and it is one of those things that an entire community will gather around the moment a set is made, because by God they've hit the jackpot. It has that about it, and it draws to it only those people that can take high risk, probably a bit nuts. I mean, I was talking to Harper's one time, one time, on the on the wake of uh, the publication of Alf. <clears throat> and they were they were very fascinated about about some of the uh, differentials that I, that I was talking about in terms of that I could get on on a marine radio and and listen and tell you what kind of fisherman it was not by what they were talking about their fishermen but what they're fishing but how they how they used imagination. Bottom of the line are the lobstermen. They're the orthodontics of the coast. They're probably, they're, they're probably the wisest because they make the money and it's the steadiest. But it's rootinous. Boom. Good. You'd set 400 traps, you're going to get... Yeah, boom, 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 boom. Next up, oh, maybe the small draggers. Very cautious, etc. But rootinous. You go on up, <clears throat> go on up, you'd get, get into the larger draggers or the... Um, uh, Purse saners, perhaps higher risk. They're running at night. You know, they got to know more about about how to scout things and look at signs. Go for a longer time without making a goddamn piece of money. And you could go right on up. You know, with the uh, gill netters. No longer while I was while I was fishing, were were any of the old trawlers, offshore trawlers with the with the tub and hooks and all that. They were all gone. That's an interesting beginning point of all this, all this. The herring, the herring fishermen were the, are the crazies, the stop saying herring fishermen. And this is before you began purse saying herring, um, which is one of, the, one of the, the significant things that's happened in the last 30 years, which is, uh, has got to be talked about in terms of decline of, of stop saying herring. And the fact, parenthetically, that uh, two years ago, the last of the sardine factories in Maine shut down, which was, is an enormous thing to happen in terms of the fisheries of Maine and, and the economy of the Maine coast. I mean, there were, I don't, I don't know what the numbers were, but 70 or 80 or more sardine factories in the coast of Maine. Now, that parent parenthesis came out of a, of a question that I've forgotten what the hell it was. <laughs> What what cultural role? Oh, and, uh, you were talking about the long the long arc of 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 technological advance. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let me follow up on that and then hang on to your cultural role. Sure. Sure. Um. When I started when I started fishing herring, um, was the tail end of a cotton twine, which itself is a 
as a delimiter because it will decay if not taken care of. It'll rot, particularly if you're catching fish. How did you maintain equipment like that as opposed to nylon dacron? Well, you had to salt it heavily and carefully. And if you had set around a, a fish and you had pumped out aboard a carrier and there was a, um, excessive scaling come, you had, to, you had to twice lift that gear. And if it's 8-fathom eight fathom, eight fathom gear or 10-fathom gear hauling by hand, at the beginning, hauling it by hand, that was heavy damned work. Um, but anyhow, you get it in a dory, <coughs> and you'd, you'd pickle brine it with hundreds of pounds of, of rock salt and pickle brine to slow it down. Did the salt improve the durability of the fibers? It, it killed the bacteria and improved it. It kept, it, it kept them from rotting from the bacteria. That, that rot would happen very, very quickly. Well, that was when everybody had uh, sisal and, and cotton. Now, most had already changed over to nylon and then polyprop and stuff um, by 1970. And that made a considerable difference um, up and down the coast. Along with about the same time, the depth recorders started coming in. You know, the, we had the early Bendix sounder, one-directional sounder, and then the scanners came in. So uh, it allowed you to see what was... Well, yeah, when, when you extrapolate that across the entirety of, of fishing, absolutely. And then the GPS, because the old-time fishermen had, had to run... They had to know their sights, and if they're running 35 miles offshore, they had to know what they were running, how the tide was running, where the wind was, um, how long they were running, etc., in order to land on a, on a fishing ground. And when radar took over heavily, oh, uh, mid to late 60s, everybody started getting radar. Henry said to me, he said, well, glad this is going to kill a lot of fishermen. And I knew immediately what he was talking about because it meant that the next generation of fishermen would not learn how to run by compass, time, and tide. They wouldn't learn how to do it. And if they're offshore trying to come home at night in a fog, in a blow, and you got water, a sea following you on the quarter, and the radar goes out, they had no goddamn way of getting home. They don't know how to do it. And he was right. The GPS, of course, you know, pfft, we can land on on, uh, on an edge of bottom 33 miles offshore, bingo, and go right back to it. We can do that. Um, the increase of size of, of boats, this was an incremental thing that you and I talked about the last time here. Um, and again, it's a catch-22, and it's within human nature uh, to get more and more. The more success we have, the more we need to, you know, Great. I mean, welcome to the United States economy, for Christ's sake. It'll get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, when I first landed here, a 42-foot 40, dragger could do a number of different things. So it had a kind of, of, of liability. If, if fishing A went down, it could, it could jump to fishing B, etc., but the young guys coming up, who were, who were my age, the Albert Thorpes, etc., started moving ahead in size. And as they moved ahead in size, the cost, the daily cost of the nut to run the boat increased exponentially. 
Albert Thorpe, damn good fisherman, good friend. He just died half a year ago. Um, he got to the point he had to catch $800 worth of fish in order to start making profit during the day at the end of the Navy Joe. Now, when you extrapolate that across the coast, and where everybody's moving towards bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger stuff, you're talking about a sizable margin of fish being caught, of bottom being destroyed, etc., simply to maintain point zero on the economy of fishermen. How you turn that around, I don't know. Like most human things, we don't tend to turn around until we hit a damn wall. And maybe some of the K. Lostima whoops up about, about the fisheries in the Gulf of Maine are a slow-mo hitting of the wall. I don't know. So when you first started fishing, no. uh, among the people whom you knew and with whom you worked, uh, they would... Uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, move between species as fisheries yeah. waxed and waned throughout the season. Yeah, as a matter of fact, a, a lot of the herring fishermen were actually actually lobster fishermen during the day, or some of them were. Um, some were even farmers. One guy here, um, Burley Staples, ran a Staples grocery store. His name was Staples, and he ran a grocery store named Staples Grocery Store. Um, he was a Mr. Magoo. He could hardly see. He could hardly see at all. And he had a his house on his boat. It was about a 36-footer, 37-footer. The house had just tiny windows that were <laughs> emblematic of, of Burley. Uh, he only fished a couple of the years that I was here. Um, but he would go out with a couple of dories and go out. Now, the way the, the, way the stop sign herring worked, well, f first of all, herring at that time would come in shore at night. That was what they would do. They would sometimes be driven there by whiting or, or on occasion, hake when there were a lot of fish behind them. But I think there's also something, and I've never seen a study done on this, but there was something within w within the uh, the biological rhythm of the herring that caused it to come ashore at night that may have a second-generational or, or secondary relationship to its also spawning habits. Now we think now of the big blueback herring spawning offshore, you know, which which a lot of which has been used for lobster bait, etc. But this was back when canned herring and the, the sizable, sizable. You look up the tonnage of that on, at the Lubeck Museum figures and, and and all that. The the tonnage was tremendous. There was a tremendous amount of fish of herring, and we would talk about them as the size that they would be canned. The largest herring would be fours in a can, then there'd be sixes, and the primes would be eights and tens. Um, and in the fall, sometimes we get tens, which are the Brit herring coming back out of the rivers that we would catch. Not in Have they already spawned? Well, this would be year-old year old having come down. Oh, so they had matured in the river. Just Yeah, but they're tiny, tiny little things. This is, this is the... The fine, fine herring. You wouldn't catch a lot of them. You might get a, a, a thousand bushel or something of them and sell them. But a lot of people of of many different kinds. There weren't there weren't at that time a hell of a lot of only herring fishermen. First of all, it was a it was a May one till end of October fisheries. So you had need to do something else. You didn't start looking for herring and then um, showed up. You, yeah, started prepping with the 
half dozen or ten dories that you got in the two same boats and the spotter airplane, which we had, um, and a couple of search boats and then the big Alice M, which is a lot of gear, which you had to keep track of. And we'd start working on that at the end of March, you know, whenever you could. But about the time that the apple blossoms, the apples would blossom, would be the earliest that you would see stop St. Herring actually land on shore. Um, and the latest of it would be, rarely would you catch any in October. You might get some some in October. But it would be June, July, and August. And they would come in big, big, big bunches. I mean, you can go a month and not catch a goddamn thing. And then and then in a five-day stretch or 11-day stretch, as we did in Christmas Cove here, we caught in a neighborhood of 1,600 tons of them. What year was that? Nineteen sixty-six, maybe sixty-seven. Uh, you're talking to an old man now. That's a good question. I, I, I don't nail that, but I think it's about that. And of course, how there, many days did the run last? It ran. It lasted eleven days, and we were going without sleep. And there were many stories that could be spun out of that because it was happening in Christmas Cove at the height of summer, with thirty or forty of these half-million-dollar yachts swinging all around, and a high percentage of these yachts thought that we were somehow put on by the local chamber of commerce as a show of fishermen. And here you had a crew of guys who hadn't slept and didn't give a goddamn what anybody thought about it. And, and I came out on deck one, one time, and there was Frankie Lesnar sitting on deck, having a talk with a, with a, a couple from Connecticut on the stern of their sailboat, those 18 feet away, they were barbecuing their meal, and he was taking a dump in a bucket, talking to them. I mean, you know, talk about juxtapositions. What was their reaction? They were, they were, I think they probably <laughs> thought he was hired by the, hired by the local town. <laughs> but there's, there's, there's a wonderful intermix. I talked about this before. Wonderful intermix of of the spirit of the crazy high high risk stuff even my agents would sometimes come up and cower and quiver and just want to go fishing you know etc um and of course henry and and gene tunney for years were the closest of friends and the kennedys would come you know on john's island by the way john's island is for sale i just learned last week which the tunneys have owned for years and years so there was that, that cross mix always always happening um but most all of the communities had had stop saners going and that was that was the thing nobody cared about who was landing you know 200 pounds of lobsters well gladden thank you very much for talking with us today it's been a real pleasure we are very happy that we were able to share that interview with you from josh and gladden uh there are a lot more of those uh types of interviews on our YouTube page, uh, which you can go onto YouTube and look up Maine Coast Fishermen's Association or the Maine Coast Oral History Project. And we've got a number of fishermen that you can go and listen to them talking about their uh, their fisheries, their histories, their lives, what it's like growing up in coastal Maine. It's, it's a pretty cool way to learn more about what's happening in our fishing industry as well. And, and kind of the history of it, right? This is an oral history project 
We were listening to people talk about what happened in their lives as they were growing up, what influenced them, um, what caused them to want to be a fisherman. So pretty cool stuff. Go check that out. You can always follow us on Facebook, uh, on Twitter. Check out our website. We'll have a couple of different blog posts that are going to be going up uh, talking about different things that are happening. We have one up right now that's uh, focusing on local events in Maine that are around seafood and fisheries that you should check out. Uh, Give it a look. Uh, So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining us. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a project of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. Today's episode was produced by Ben Martens and Stephanie's son, our fantastic Bowdoin intern for the summer. Emily also is taking the week off, but she'll be back with us in a couple of weeks.